Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we're discussing Cheryl Dunya's groundbreaking 1996 film, The Watermelon Woman, a work of cinematic autofiction in which Dunya stars as a version of herself, a young Black lesbian who embarks upon a video and research project about a fictional Black actress from the 1930s known only as The Watermelon Woman. So... As we mentioned in our sort of tag to the last episode, we did two very macho, big Hollywood movies in sequence, those being The Northman and The Batman. And we were kind of like, what is the farthest away from this that we can get? We want to do a film by a female director. Um, and Gav suggested The Watermelon Woman, which I watched a couple years ago when it was getting a lot of attention and it was streaming on Criterion. And I loved it, and I thought that was a great idea. So I rewatched it, and Gav watched it for the first time, and I think that we are in agreement that this is an excellent film. And I we love this. To I talk just about it. enjoyed this movie so much. Every moment of it, I was like, "This is perfect." I'm getting so much out of this on like multiple levels. It's so fun. Just the lead performance is delightful. It's a really interesting and unique concept. I just came out of this with like such a positive experience. <laughs> I think it's really amazing. I don't think it's perfect. It was obviously made for not very much money. And you can kind of tell the main way you can sort of tell that it's made by people who are working really on a shoestring is that the acting is in some cases quite amateurish. But I think that adds to the charm. In a way, yeah, like, I was so like, this clearly... doesn't need to have a cast of really great actors. It's completely fine that uh, like half the people who are in it are just like her pals. <laughs> yeah. And the ways that it's rough around the edges, I do think kind of add to it. But for context, this was the first feature film made by a black lesbian director, at least in the United States. And definitely got attention at the time for that and was sort of like traveled around the film festival circuit and the queer film festival circuit in the 90s, but had kind of gone back into obscurity after that point. It was definitely known amongst people who are experts in queer cinema. It hadn't been totally forgotten by any means, but really got a lot of attention in 2020 um, after the Black Lives Matter protest when a bunch of streaming services were rushing to put a bunch of films by Black filmmakers on their platforms, which they had not previously done. And this was a movie that, again, was streaming specifically on the Criterion channel, and it got written up a lot. And it wasn't something I had previously heard of, and I watched it because everyone was sort of talking about how great it was. And um, I think it's really fascinating, both as a sort of historical and cultural artifact of the 90s and as a movie in and of itself, it kind of works on both levels, but it's impossible to watch it and not think about the significance in terms of sort of it being a pioneering film. But that's also literally like what it's about. Yeah, exactly. And you don't get any sense of like self-importance from it, despite the fact that it is doing something really new and important. It's both engaging with the idea of being groundbreaking, but not in a like ponderous way. It's quite funny and experimental in an accessible way, I would say. Like I know that in the intro I was like a cinematic autofiction, which is exactly what it is, but I don't think that this is a tart movie to watch, like in any respect. Yeah. I mean it's simultaneously like really deep and smart and also kind of a bit just like watching the sitcom Friends. <laughs> if anyone in the sitcom Friends wasn't a homophobe. <laughs> 
I mean, I think that's an amazing description and completely true because the film kind of blends two things together. One of which is this very intellectually rigorous exploration of Hollywood history and simultaneously all of these very funny scenes that are just like about this young woman. I mean, it's and goofy Hannah. And it's like people yeah. going to like lesbian cafes and having little arguments about their stupid girl troubles and wearing fun little 90s outfits and being stupid because they're all 25. And that's delightful and very self aware. Yeah, there are a lot of great one liners in this yes. movie. <laughs> very, very funny. And very funny in a very specifically lesbian way which you just don't often get from works of cinema and certainly not mainstream cinema because there's no effort to be like pandering to any other gaze or viewer right i mean in the relatively limited fields of movies that are about queer women there's like a fair amount that are historical dramas there's a fair amount that are like about queer women but are not embedded in lesbian culture and the number of movies that are specifically about just like contemporary lesbians who are like surrounded by a bunch of other queer women is like minuscule in my in my experience anyway i mean the thing this really reminded me of a lot was the comic dykes to watch out for which most listeners will know about via the ubiquity of the bechdel test because the creator of the comic alison bechdel kind of coined this via one of her friends like that's the most famous strip but like it's this sort of semi-autobiographical comic that went for like 20 years she's still working on like other comics elsewhere but like that is literally like sort of a 90s lesbian hangout comic where it's just a bunch of people like shooting the shit and discussing politics and their love lives and stuff for years and years and years and years and that kind of overlaps with a style of 90s diary comic and just like 90s lo-fi indie movies that I feel is very familiar like Clerks or any movie from the 90s where people are <laughs> hanging out at a video store, which is what this movie's about, because the protagonist works in a, lo- in a video store. Yeah, I mean, we were texting after you watched it about, I think you said that this was like the only 90s movie that actually made you remember the 90s, and we had different touch points for what about this <laughs> reminded us of the 90s, and we were like children at the time that this movie came yeah. out. But um, the video store just reminded me so viscerally of actually going to a video store And there are plenty of, like, mainstream Hollywood movies from that era that have scenes in video stores. I mean, lots of romantic comedies would, like, drop in in a video store, you know. But because so much of this movie takes place there and it's meant to be really realistic, it just felt like what going to the video store actually felt like. And, you know, my dad and I would go to the video store all the time when I was growing up. And that is kind of, like, an essential part of day-to-day life and culture is obviously completely a thing of the past now. And, like, the sense memory of that experience was so visceral to me, watching this in a, like, surreal way, almost. Like, there's all these different places that they visit in this thing. So there's, like, there's one part where they're at, like, a lesbian bar where there's all these absolutely terrible kind of karaoke-style singers. And then there's also one where they're at some kind of community centre. And I was like, this community centre is bang on the money. Because as a (laughs) child, like, my parents were part of the local like barter system where you have like an alternate barter currency among all the hippies so that sort of vibe and I was like this situation feels very familiar to me there's a point where she visits a feminist archive and I was like I can imagine going to this feminist archive with my mother (laughs) you know (laughs) 
Well, we definitely have to talk about the archive scene. It's hysterical. I mean, we should do a little intro to Cheryl Dunya first. (laughs) Yes. I mean, the archive stuff. Right, true to me as based on my adult experience, but I was not doing that stuff with my mother at the age of, you know, six. So, (laughs) but yeah, let's give an introduction to Cheryl Dunya first. So, she has a really interesting sort of chronology to her career and background. She was born in Liberia and then grew up in Philadelphia. You have a detail here about her father, which I did not see in interviews, but is totally. Yeah, well, I watched a little video interview with her that she did with Criterion where she kind of talks about her background and she says that her dad worked for Polaroid, like the camera company. So she grew up around cameras and like she was really into documenting her family and looking at the two halves of her family because like one half was African and one half was African-American and she liked to sort of compare the photos she had of both of them. And she said that like the Polaroid camera that her family had had sort of a selfie button like before selfies were a thing and she was in charge of pressing the button. So I was like, that is a really cute backstory for how she both became like really interested in cameras, which is common for a lot of filmmakers to have that background. And also the fact that she was so interested in the concept of documenting stuff specifically around her own life which is what like so much of her body of work is about yes so she at first goes to michigan state and then transfers to temple which is in uh, philadelphia and then winds up getting an mfa from rutgers at some point in this process in this sort of undergraduate process she decides she wants to study film i assume that's when she transfers to temple and then at rutgers there's this like very sort of intense arts scene and I think a lot of underground stuff going on there and I was reading some interviews with her where she talks about in general her influences and background I mean this completely makes sense based on the kind of movies that she would then go on to make and also like most artists are interested in a lot of other stuff and like are influenced by lots of interesting things but they're just like depth and density with which she was clearly like watching and reading things at this time. So there's an interview with the film stage where she talks about the stuff that influenced her. And I'll just read it out because there's like a ton of stuff in here. So she says, so I watched a lot of work. I would say Godard, African cinema, black radical cinema from the UCLA folks who she's referenced earlier in the interview, Larry Clark, killer of sheep, daughters of the dust. They gave me a way to kind of mix it together and come out with a unique voice and vision. David Holtzman's diary was one of the turning points when I realized that Jim McBride was fooling us all and why, and then Marlon Riggs and all the black gay artists and activists and leaders who were involved in survival and telling these stories in the early nineties, who were my mentors. It was this bridge between critical writing by black gay men and black lesbians and people making work. So I just picked up my camera and kind of rolled. And in that quote, and then in other interviews she's giving, you can see there's this connection between academic thought and activism and art that all are getting blended together in the way that she's thinking and the way that she's making art. And she says in some other interview, or maybe at another point in that interview, that like she considers herself an activist, and that that was completely part of the way she was approaching making films, which I think is really interesting because on the one hand, She's clearly making a political point with The Watermelon Woman, but it's not a film where you watch it and feel like you're being beaten over the head with, like, a message. As we were just saying, it is really fun and funny. And there's a quote from, I think, her producing partner. She says, that's Cheryl's power. She's funny. And she opens doors, but the doors she's opening are complicated. And I feel like the idea of her power being humor 
makes so much sense having seen this movie because she's getting across all of these incredibly complicated, sort of ambiguous ideas. But because the film is so pleasurable and funny to watch, it goes down easy and you almost miss how sort of radical what she's doing is. Or you might miss it if you're not specifically sort of thinking about it while watching. I mean, the vibe of the movie is very much like this is someone who really understands friendship and community and has great social skills. And then the casting of the movie is like this person has a massive social circle. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, clearly she's literally just casting her friends. So she did a bunch of shorts before doing this. I don't know as much about those, although you can find more out about them on the internet if you so desire. But she was working in a similar mode that she called her, her Dunumentaries, of which the Watermelon Woman is also one, where she's kind of doing a documentary and she's kind of doing a fiction film and it all kind of blends together. Like, this clearly is a feature fiction film. Like, it's not pretending to be a real documentary. But she's playing a character in the film who has her own name and shares many elements of her biography and her mother plays her mother and yeah i mean it's kind of not a mockumentary because it's not mocky but it is kind of a mockumentary it's a type of film which i've seen many many examples of exclusively in the horror genre where there's like a variety of found footage experimental movies in horror but i've never seen it used precisely in this way where you kind of explore real history by making up fake history which is something I always just like find fascinating and exciting in fiction yeah and I think the shorts she did before this were closer to the documentary end of the spectrum whereas in this she's getting closer to the fictional end of the spectrum because it has like a plot arc yeah and again she's like fully made up this actor at the center of the movie who her character is investigating but um Camille Paglia appears in this movie as herself (laughs) that was the point where like halfway through the film i picked up my phone and was googling like camille paglia interview real i didn't know she had a sort of a sense of humor in this current era i just think of her as like terrible you know and i was watching this and i was like this is really funny but it's the whole joke of her role is that she's this like terrible white person with clueless opinions and i'm like would she do this and it's apparently yeah (laughs) yeah Danya says that, like, she was kind of friends with her at the time. And she was like, I don't think she's exactly, like, lying. Like, she's a provocateur. Like, she says, like, she kind of thinks what she's saying, but she knows that she's, like, she's doing it on purpose, you know, to make a point. And also completely understands what the movie is doing. She's in on the joke, right? But in that arc I've seen that we mentioned, like, Sarah Shulman, who was... And is a lesbian activist and historian and novelist, but like very much involved with all those kind of archives stuff, plays the archivist. And like there's just this sort of like melding of reality and fiction, even if the movie itself isn't purporting to be an actual document of truth, right? Yeah. I mean, part of the backstory of this film, which, as we said, is about a young documentarian who's investigating the history of this black actress she has very little information about because also this is pre-internet so like that makes all the research much more difficult but um this film cost three hundred thousand dollars to make which was partly grant funding and partly just she self-funded it through friends and community members and stuff and one of the big stumbling blocks was that she just couldn't afford to do all the research necessary to find a real historical figure to base her movie around because the whole point is it's about 
finding the true life of a black Hollywood actress in the 30s, about which there is not much documentation. And two of the places she tried were the Library of Congress and the Lesbian Herstory Library. And in this movie that is satirized in a archive, I don't recall what the actual words stand for, but like the acronym stands for CLIT. So it's like the C-L-I-T library. And I was like, I'm I'm having hysterics. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that scene is one of, the funniest things I've seen in a movie in a long time. The one thing that's like perhaps too much is that the archivist comes and just dumps a box upside down on the table, which a real archivist would not do. Don't know if she is a real archivist. <laughs> I was like, right. I was like, I want, I, it made me think that she had gone to a sort of, I don't know what, know what word to use, like non-professional sounds derogatory but like in a technical sense non-professional archive right and had someone do this in front of her because it was just so like horrifying to me as someone who deals a lot with archives but everything else about that scene I was like oh this is completely correct like the archivist is very awkward she's talking too much and she freaks out when they try to take pictures she's like no 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 if this is all confidential it can't be documented but in a like more patronizing and annoying way there's this all of this business about how all the stuff about black women is in like its own box (laughs) because there was like a special grant for that none of it has been cataloged yet so it's literally all like in the whole archive not just the black section so it's all just like dumped in boxes and like completely disorganized and that's just one example of what the whole movie is doing but i think it speaks to what she's so smart about throughout the whole film, which is that it is unbelievably specific to that particular scene, right? Yeah. I mean, to go into a bit more detail about, like, just the overall premise, which you kind of talked about more generally throughout this, is that um, obviously the protagonist, Cheryl, who is this video store worker who wants to make movies, she loves to watch these old movies from the 30s, which her friends find baffling because obviously all of these films are really racist and the only black characters are generally playing servants. And the whole point of this is she just becomes obsessed with this woman who is only credited as the watermelon woman, who is this young servant to this white lady in a obscure film from the 30s and she sources all of these films because she just orders them under pseudonyms through the video store because obviously she can't like afford to buy a bunch of films and she goes through all these different routes to try and track down the identity of this woman in a way that I think Morgan and I both found really evocative because we love to watch these movies from the 30s and 40s and we also have read extensively a lot of academic texts about this period of cinema history and like at this point now there's more documentation about this topic and also like more information available on the internet but because so many films from that period were destroyed and because there was such a lack of priority toward the black actors it's a completely realistic scenario I mean, so much so that the whole problem with her making this film is that, like, she couldn't make a film about a real actress because all the information is about, like, a small handful of more famous actresses like Hattie McDaniel, who won the Oscar for Gone with the Wind. And then most of the women who were just playing, like, maids in five or six films were, like, just lost to the sands of time, you know? But as she kind of goes through the information she finds about this actress... 
she gradually discovers that this woman was queer and she kind of starts interviewing people who might have known her in real life. There's an intimation that she may have had a love affair with the director of this movie who was also a woman and is kind of inspired by this lesbian filmmaker from the 30s called Dorothy Arzner. And it's just really interesting because it kind of feels very real in that way that people kind of use historical discovery to like get in touch with themselves. And while that's all happening, there's sort of a modern day subplot where along with her hanging around with her like fun 90s pals, she also has like a love affair with this woman that she meets in the video store who's this like hot white lady who's really charming, but also kind of politically clueless and increasingly unpleasant, I think, but in a sort of fun way. Yeah, I mean, the interviews with Danya where she talks about the research she basically is like there just is no information about any black lesbians slash queer actresses from this period and surely they existed but like even when she's talking about this in 2020 she's just like i just there's just nothing there's no information available and so it has to be made up and that she then says also like i just straight up stole dorothy arzner's biography for the director character which is an interesting contrast because dorothy arzner was also an extremely unusual figure in hollywood at that time both because she was a female director and there were almost i mean she basically was it in that category and that she was an out lesbian like she did made no efforts to like hide that particularly you know and so melding that unusual story and that it's very historically documented with then this sort of fantastical story about a black woman who might have been in a position to know someone like that, I think is really interesting. And I think a lot of what's interesting about what the movie is doing with history is sort of showing this present day character being really thrilled and energized by the possibility of learning about this woman and the fact that she existed. And when she's like, oh, and she's from Philadelphia and she was a lesbian. Like, it's like this so exciting to her because she feels like she has a connection to her. But there's also a critique of that in the movie, which is what I find so interesting about it, right? Because she doesn't actually know very much about this woman and she didn't obviously have a personal relationship with her and so there's a huge amount of projection that's going on in terms of her kind of wanting to find all this stuff out and wanting this figure to kind of be something for her that it's kind of impossible for her to be because <laughs> she can't really know her right and the simultaneous dream of finding out these things that make them seem very similar and then the movie kind of refusing to let her have the dream come true in the sense of like finding this huge archive of everything that she ever wrote or like you know whatever and we'll talk about how the movie ends at the end although it's obviously not really a spoilery film I think is really smart and provocative because it both acknowledges, as you say, the sort of like vitality of history to people and also the fact that history is kind of unknowable and that this history gets lost. So much history gets lost and especially queer history, right? Which 
didn't get documented, as Dunya's whole process shows, right? Because she couldn't find anyone. So I think ultimately the movie is really ambivalent about all of that, which I think is what makes it so great. Yeah, I mean, it has this really self-aware relationship with just like the concept of representation. Because like when you read interviews with Cheryl Dunya, she kind of talks about like how explicitly aware she was that there were no other films by black lesbian filmmakers and she wanted to build her early career just exclusively around making movies about black lesbians and interracial relationships and film history and her relationship with other movies. And that's completely what this film is all about. And the main character is kind of uncertain about her creative path. And in some ways is like a very familiar kind of sort of 90s semi-slacker figure where it's like she's able to support herself on a video store paycheck, which is like not something that's viable these days. Um, And she's like pursuing art, but doesn't really have like this really specific ambition and drive. She just like knows that she wants to make a movie, but implicitly she's like emotionally a few years behind the real Cheryl Dunya. Like the, the character she's playing in this film is like really charming and quite sweet and naive. And like her friends don't really understand like what the fuck she's trying to do here, which is fair enough. Cause like at first she doesn't understand what the fuck she's trying to do here. And then as you say, she like really imprints on this historical figure she's found. Cause it's really thrilling to find someone who reflects your reality. And I think that's something we see a lot now where there is like a real hunger to find representation and when you're looking at historical figures like there's only so much you can know and the more people kind of get excited about queer history the more people try to specify stuff about like historical figures that you just can't know especially because like modern identity labels don't function the same way if you go back like 150 years there's all these kind of you know gender roles and like sexuality is conflated in a different way than it is now so you can't automatically be like oh this person's definitely non-binary because it's like well what does that mean in like the year 1835 (laughs) but like in terms of this you know 1930s hollywood era like there was actually a lesbian subculture and like you do get these interviews with people who are like from the mid-20th century who's experiences feel like this previous link in the chain of queer history where the main character of this movie is this young person who's learning from her elders but even then you get like these older characters who are like not scolding her but trying to be like well you know be less excited about this thing that you think you found because like this was my actual life and it was really difficult and like also really joyful and involved all these other people who like you're never going to understand because life was completely different in 1930 or 1950. paradox of her both being like i must make this black lesbian film because nobody else is doing it which is this clearly urgent mission for her and then choosing to make a movie that's sort of interrogating what that like feeling in you means is so interesting to me because she clearly understands that like this is something that needs to be out there not even necessarily like her I mean, obviously, when you're making a film or writing something, you you do think it should be out there because that's how art works. But it's less, I think, about her being so egotistical that she thinks that she's that important, but like no one else is doing it. So she has to. As like an autobiographical work, it reminded me slightly of The Souvenir, like specifically in the way that the filmmaker is portraying herself. And in some ways, it's like even more impressive in that regard, because As we've said in episodes where we've talked about the two souvenir movies, they're like new films by Joanna Hogg and they're about her kind of talking about her 
early adulthood 30 years in the future so it's like a woman who is mature like a woman in her 60s looking back at herself age 20 and being like oh god this person was so vulnerable and also really embarrassing and in this Cheryl Dunya was like I guess like 29 or 30 when this film came out and the character she's playing is sort of sometime, somewhere in her mid or early 20s like that's the way she behaves anyway and it just shows like this amazing sort of affection for herself and sort of amusement but also respect which is very different from I think a lot of autobiographical works are a lot more angsty and egomaniacal and intrinsically taking yourself really seriously and this is like the opposite of that yeah I think that's a great comparison though the films are totally very different. yeah completely different in every other regard like totally completely different works but in terms of like the attitude to introspection it yeah, just like was yeah. really interesting to me. But I think part of what's so interesting about this movie is that she, as I was saying earlier, right? Like she's not taking herself seriously, which is what you're saying too. And that extends to the project of making a black lesbian film, right? Which I think makes the ultimate project so much more successful that you don't have that sense of like, this is an important thing that we are doing, right? Like, there's a lot of the characters in the movie kind of, like, making fun of the black lesbian scene in Philly at the time in a way that is quite entertaining, but you don't have a sense of them being like, well, we can't say anything offensive, right? (laughs) Because you don't get the sense that anyone thinks anyone's going to be watching this movie. Like, they're just making it to make it and then somehow it's kind of survived for this long yeah i mean that's definitely like the vibe of dykes to watch out for which was just this underground thing for years and years and then 20 years later the rest of culture catches up and gives alison bechdel like a macarthur genius grant you know well i mean she also wrote fun home which is like considered one of the great novels years and years later i mean i should have mentioned that it's like what's the most famous thing she's now written obviously fun home yeah but yeah i mean we should talk a bit about the friends in this because we've talked a lot about the like film history stuff but um so like her best friend in this is her co-worker at the video store tamara who's played by valerie walker who as far as i know not an actress like she's done some other art stuff but like clearly just one of her pals who is a black bitch lesbian and has a girlfriend and they are like constantly trying to fix up Cheryl with their friend who is just this like hysterical nightmare. Like they go go to this bar and she's clearly this person who loves drama. She's wearing this like fun little outfit. She's really grating. She sings a really attention seeking song and they're all kind of talking about like, oh yeah, you know, she's got all these mental health issues. You like that, don't you? And she's like, no, I would prefer to date someone mentally stable right now. (laughs) You know (laughs) The song she sings at the bar. Oh, I was dying. <laughs> oh my God. That also made me think of like 30s movies, right? There's a scene in The Awful Truth where Cary Grant has a new woman he's supposedly seeing to make Irene Dunn, his ex-wife, feel jealous. And she's kind of this like trashy girl who sings a, you know, song at a nightclub, which is inherently a low class thing to do. And she's also terrible. Like her dress flies up in front of her face. And... That is not a unique scene to that movie. And the sort of like spectacle of performance is used in romantic comedies a lot in that way in the 30s. And it's not like an 
explicit homage or anything, but it again, I was like, oh, this woman has seen so many of those old movies and is like so <laughs> smart about it. And kind of melding that with just like the experience of going to a bar. I mean, that definitely yes. also felt like something that one wouldn't see both in real life now and also in movies now, because I think there's so much pressure to be like really polished. I mean, that kind of plays into also the fact that like as a film by a queer woman, just like the physical appearance of the women in this movie, every time someone came in in a new outfit, I was like so excited. And I mean, there's a lot of chat I noticed about the sex scene, which like barely even registered to me when I was watching the movie. I was like, oh, there's a sex scene. But like, if you go to like the Wikipedia page for this movie, there was like a controversy where people were very mad because this film got funding and it's like, oh my God, there's a sex scene in it. That's really pornographic. It's 20 seconds long. It's definitely way more explicit oh, than pretty much it's, anything it's, you would have seen It's very explicit. Like, I, can, like, I, I, I can see why it was scandalous, but like what I was trying to say is like, it definitely feels very different from the sex scenes you see in most movies. And also just the way that women are dressing and like the body types that you see are drastically different. And the fact that you have like a bunch of people not wearing bras, so you see like natural boob shape, is very unusual. Obviously there was a bit more of that in the 90s than there is now. But even with like, you know, the love interest is just like this kind of conventionally feminine 90s girl, but she still kind of looks noticeably different from the people you would see in say, Friends. And then like Cheryl Dunya is really, really cute and has all these great outfits she has um a doc martens and shorts outfit and she's wearing all these oversized shirts with the arms cut off and stuff like that and like so is her friend tamara and i was just like this is the best looks i have seen in a long time bring back these looks it was oh it was great i was just every time she came out in a new outfit i was like so happy (laughs) all of the like big shirts with the arms cut off great like so 90s so great i think the the clothes also are just so specifically make sense for each character, right? Yes. And it's they're obviously buying everything off the rack. Like no one in this movie was was making clothes, I assume, based on the budget. And you just get the sense that they really knew who all these characters were. Like there's a younger white woman who works at the video store who's <laughs> Very, like, comically over the top, like, trying to be really goth. And she was, like, she was Julia Stiles. It was, like, this is a completely unknown actress, so I don't know if if she was an actress, but, like, she is the Julia Stiles vibe because she's this sort of 90s edgy feminist girl (laughs) that's got, like, a big, like, dog collar and stuff. I loved her. And her t-shirts and, like, I don't know, big pants kind of, like, totally makes sense on her. (laughs) And, like, the hair dye. I also noticed that a couple of them have noticeably bad teeth or just like big tooth gaps. Like they don't, they look fine, but it's like not Hollywood, you know, veneer teeth situation, which is so completely like you never, ever see that in American films. And to your point, like they just look like normal people, which is very, very refreshing and it's a combination of the casting, which is, is all just like her friends, and the styling, which is very smartly done to make them all look like attractive, but not abnormal. From I mean, what you it would, would see make me very curious to see how Cheryl Dunya would cast a movie now, because 
like many women filmmakers who came up through indie cinema, in recent years, she has spent far more time doing TV. My assumption would be because it's very hard to fund an indie movie, as we say constantly, but also like, you know, she's enjoying TV. You know, she's been directing stuff like Bridgerton and Why the Last Man. But if she was making a movie now, I would love to know what would her cast look like? Would she still be casting people who look normal? I hope so. She's talked about this in interviews. She did a movie in 2001 called Stranger Inside, based on the experiences of African-American lesbians in prison. And it had a much larger budget than her previous works, which is $2 million. And I believe that Harvey Weinstein was a producer on this movie and did his Harvey Scissorhands thing. Yeah, I saw an interview where she was just like, yeah, it was completely edited without my consent. And she basically, she like moved to Europe and was like, I need to like, refined myself because she'd had such an appalling experience on this. And so I think in a lot of cases, you see female directors who Hollywood is kind of actively not giving opportunities to. And I think in this case, it was actually more that she kind of took herself out of the rat race deliberately because she was like, this is not what I wanted to do. Well, she also directed and co-wrote a movie with Sarah Shulman called The Owls, which is about a group of older lesbians. Yeah, so she did The Owls in 2010. She also did a short film in 2014 called Black is Blue. So she has been doing stuff and like, she and Shulman also wrote another movie together. But um, she's done a ton of teaching. That seems to be like a lot of where she's put her energy is teaching at like lots of universities. And then has gotten back into directing for television, which I am sure is partly because it is much easier to do that as opposed to getting a feature film funded. And it looks like she's trying to develop a couple of adaptations of novels to be features. But my suspicion is that she is more content with the current situation she is in than some yeah, people, than some people might are. be. <laughs> she was did some interviews when she, she did a big episode of Lovecraft Country last year or the year before, whenever that was on. And she was very candid and open about being like, yeah, like, I'm basically just like, learning how to like, do all the special effects stuff and all like working with like a big production. And she'd already done a lot of TV directing by that point. So I think her attitude seems to be very much like, she's just very open to everything. I mean, the interview she did with Vanity Fair when the Watermelon Woman was getting a lot of attention was like, the most appealing interview I've read with a person basically ever. I was just like, I would be friends with you. Like, she just seems completely, A, fun, back to the point of her being funny, but also both really smart and clued into, like, serious bad stuff happening in the world without just being like, it's all horrible, <laughs> you know, which is a trap that I think all of us can fall into. And the sort of, like, not taking herself seriously at all. In any way, despite having, you know, directed this like really important landmark movie, like it was all of a sudden getting attention and she was kind of just like, this is cool. I wasn't expecting this to happen. So I think she's kind of just doing whatever it is she feels like doing. And I certainly hope she gets to make, you know, whatever she wants to make because I would love to watch it. I mean, in one of the interviews I read, she was talking about how she's really interested in making sci-fi right now. And I was like, excellent. I want to see what your sci-fi movie would look like. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, she was talking a lot about sort of Afrofuturism a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago now, because she was like, wasn't seeing, I think she said, sort of 
queer black women in the future. And she was like, well, what would that look like? Which I think probably is part of why she was taking some of the TV directing stuff that she was taking. Like Lovecraft Country obviously is a genre, was a genre show. Yeah, I just think she seems totally fascinating. Like even the fact that she was doing all that TV stuff after having started out in such a sort of low key experimental place like that's a it's almost a totally different skill set than making this movie although the bones are the same so i think it probably was like okay how do i kind of learn to do this totally different thing and like it's all on digital now right which would have been different even from the feature she made with weinstein so i mean she's only 55 yeah no i mean she's in her prime (laughs) yeah i hope she gets to do whatever she wants she's theoretically developing a TV movie for HBO, but everyone's theoretically developing something, so we'll see. Let's talk about the end of this movie. Yeah. Do you want to wanna give us a little description? Yeah, so after she's done all this research and she's kind of gone through various interviews and stuff, she finally finds both, like, the last surviving relative of this white lesbian director who worked with the Watermelon Woman. And then she finds this woman's lover. So the watermelon woman's real name was Faye, Faye Richards. And um, there's loads of kind of fake archival footage they make for this movie, which is really cool. So she finds out that like Faye also was like a nightclub singer and she did some other projects. And then she retired with her girlfriend, June Walker, for decades. And it kind of concludes with this interview with June, who is now quite elderly, sort of, talking about how she's like basically pissed off with the rumors that Faye and this director were a couple and gives like Cheryl more serious things to think about basically about this woman's legacy and her responsibility to fight that legacy. Well, it's not even an interview. She tries, she finds her and then shows up and the oh, yeah, she's left gone like to video. the hospital. She's left. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't yeah. actually get to speak with June. So it's kind of this illustration of how tenuous a lot of these connections are. But this woman leaves messages for her. Yeah. She leaves her like a, like an envelope of photographs. And then this letter where she's sort of expressing what you were just describing. And I think the combination of those two scenes, which are not back to back, but obviously are these kind of pillars at the end of the movie with the connections to these two big people are really interesting because on the one hand you have this elderly white woman who's like of course she wasn't a lesbian it's her sister right yeah and it's like clearly a bigot but she's also really old you're like well this woman sucks but also like cheryl's a really bad interviewer (laughs) her like privileged white girlfriend just got her an in with this woman and the girlfriend is like also not great. She's trying to talk to this old homophobe and instead of going in gently and being like, do you want to tell me anything about your sister? She's like, so I know your sister was a lesbian and was having an affair with this woman. Like, tell me all about it. So like immediately gets off in the wrong foot and completely screws up the interview. And it's like, well, yeah, it's like one of the other illustrations of how she's like quite naive and doesn't necessarily know how to do the job she's trying to do. Well, and the like ego and sort of blinders that she has by this point, right? Because even if she is right, well, one, she's talking with an incredible degree of authority about a woman she actually doesn't know very much about. But two, even if she is sort of morally right that this woman is bigoted and clearly this director was a lesbian and like all of the history books have agreed that this is the case, you're not really getting anywhere by like berating an elderly woman, even if she does suck, right? Like at a certain point, you have to just sort of not 
do that because you're not going to get anything out of her and it's not particularly humane. She's not like a war criminal. So like, whatever. And she is so caught up in her own sort of righteousness about uncovering all this stuff and like her project that she loses focus of anyone else and isn't getting what she would like need for the project to be successful, right? So she's like shooting herself in the foot. And I think the girlfriend who we haven't talked about very much is a really effective character because she clearly isn't a good match for Cheryl and like isn't great, but I don't think she's like horrible. I think she's kind of just like clueless, I think is the best word which you used earlier. She just kind of is like dumb. You know, and like, you know, whatever. And I think it's a really good depiction of a relationship that isn't, it's not like this woman is like horrifically racist. It's just that she yeah, is like, a like there's a definite racist. suggestion that she's got like some fetishization issues. Yes. She only dates black people, probably. It's more that like they're just really not a good fit for each other. And it's sort of like someone you date in your 20s that you're later like, oh, that was not And it doesn't great. last that long. Like, I like the way it's yeah, structured yeah. as well. Because, like, it is portrayed as quite casual. She is really into her for a while. And her friend is like, what the fuck? But also her friend is really judgmental and is, like, trying to push her towards this other woman who, like, sucks more. Oh, <laughs> and yeah, then when 100%. they break up, it's, like, it's practically off screen. Like, they're together for a while. But, like, the priority here is her work. It's not this girl. And I think a worse movie would have a big scene where the white girlfriend says something really racist. And that's the impetus for the breakup. But as you say, like the focus of the movie is not on her. The focus is on this movie that Cheryl is making. And that's what's more interesting to her. And it's more that like this kind of just peters out because it's kind of like, do I really want to be dating this white girl who's kind of just an idiot? Like, no. It was more about them being sexually attracted to each other. And then once that's over, it's like, eh, you know, Oh god, whatever. the beginning, when they like are first flirting, it's so funny. Cheryl literally has no idea that this woman is like blatantly hitting on her. And it's and her so obvious. It's like so, it's I was so like watching obvious. this and I was like, this woman is fucking going for it. I am so proud of this woman for like fully hitting on Cheryl in like the most blatant way and then not giving up because she's like, well, this woman doesn't understand what's happening here. So like comes back like a second time to try and reiterate that she is trying to pick her up. <laughs> it's very, it's very funny. But yeah, so that kind of is done. And then this woman who was Faye's partner who winds up in the hospital and we never see on screen but we hear this voiceover of her reading this letter cheryl is definitely concerned about her in the hospital but she's mostly concerned because she's disappointed because she really wanted to interview her which i can totally understand yeah, i mean they don't have a relationship <laughs> but it's like the way that she's interacting with this story is all about herself right and the letter that this woman leaves is trying to convey to her that Faye is a real person and not just sort of an icon, right? And you get enough of a glimpse through that letter of the real life that she had to get a sense of that other life. But obviously it's only fragmentary because it's a letter. It's not the real thing. And I just found it both very emotionally affecting but also intellectually just like very, just very like sharp. a more introspective attitude towards the concept of journalism that a lot of real journalists <laughs> seem to like get. <laughs> well, I also like I'm personally really fascinated by the idea of sort of how you can 
try to find and interpret history and the things that get kind of lost. We both love that concept. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And queer history is obviously, it's just particularly salient for that zone of history because so much got lost. And um, there's an Alan Hollinghurst book called The Stranger's Child that's specifically about this, that's also, that's like told over the course of like a hundred years where like you see the real people and then how they get kind of like turned into public figures and icons over the course of time and how things get lost. And I think about that book all the time because it depicts that really affectingly. And I think this movie obviously has like a shorter historical time scale and the actual movie is only taking place in sort of present day, but it's doing a similar thing of sort of showing you glimpses of this real person and glimpses of their kind of public life and acknowledging that there's only so much that can ever be known about them. And I just find that really moving. And I think that she really gets that. And it also then winds up being a really moving tribute to the real people who starred in these movies, who, whose stories have been lost. Like we'll never know those details, but even the fact of sort of attempting to construct something fictional that's necessarily sort of, only gets part way about one of them is like a tribute to those women, which I find, yeah, very moving. So yeah, great movie. We loved it. <laughs> yeah. Very I happy mean, to have watched it. Everyone should watch this. I really think it's one of the most important like American films, certainly of the last, you know, 50 years or whatever. And it's fun. <laughs> it's not a chore at all. It's an hour and a half long. Got fun outfits, fun, fun music, really agitating cast, short scenes that kind of mix between little Vox Pop interviews and comedy and historical stuff. Amazing format. Yeah, we didn't we have to actually mention before we finish, this is such a great mixture of film and digital technologies because she records herself on a video camera and then records stuff around Philly, like these little interviews that you just mentioned on a video camera so it's all digital and this is like early digital so it looks like shit and then the stuff that's the characters actually sort of like in their real lives in quotes is filmed on film and it looks beautiful and the way she kind of melds those things together is so pleasurable from an artistic perspective like bouncing back between this incredibly rich 35 millimeter and then all of a sudden it's like nope we're back to junky (laughs) digital stuff like which also would have saved them a lot of money on film, I'm sure, to not have to be on 35 all the time. But uh, it's it's just so smart. The whole movie is so smart. And you should definitely watch it. So thanks to everyone for listening. Next week, we will be watching another sort of classic of the American screen, another comedy, but very different from this film in many ways. We will be watching a... Listener request designed for living based in quotes on the Noel Coward play. It was basically totally rewritten for Hollywood, which neither of us had seen before. And what a delight. What a joy. Yeah. Everyone I know who watches this is immediately like, you have to see it. I mean, it's a rom-com from 1933 about a thruple, two men and a woman, very overt portrayal. And it's hilarious. The movie's really not trying to hide that fact in any way. We'll talk a lot about all the pre-code stuff next week. And that's not an area where that like I'm a particular expert in. I've seen way more 
code era movies. I've but, seen um, many, many pre-code movies, including many films starring these specific actors. So uh, yeah. it's, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's three people who are like at the top of their game at this point, And it's a very, very funny movie. Yeah. I really think, even though I'm not an expert in that era, that it's the most candid movie about sex I've seen. Yeah. Uh, from like early Hollywood. It's pretty incredible. Like, they're just, there's no pretension. I mean, aside from, like, Mae West, but even Mae West, kind of the point was that the the sex was sort of jokey, you know? Yes, exactly. And in this, it's like, they're just fucking. Yeah. (laughs) They can't acknowledge that the men are fucking because that's a step too far. Although they definitely are fucking. They are definitely. There's there's several points where you're like, well, these guys should be kissing right now, but, like, that's illegal, so. Right, yeah. It's so much fun. Gary Cooper, one of the most attractive men to ever have existed. I mean, everyone in this movie is completely gorgeous, but Gary Cooper is a particular favorite of mine. So I was just like, oh my God. Like- <laughs> yeah, if you've not been exposed to Gary Cooper, one of the most iconic A-list kind of leading men of film history, he's in this, in his prime, looking fantastic. Yeah, he basically played either like very serious Western leading men or dummies in romantic comedies. And he was great at both. So Beloved by all. Yep. Especially the many, many people he had affairs with, which was mandatory at this point in film history. Correct. Correct. He slept with everybody. But we'll be talking about that in more detail next week. So tune in for that. That movie is currently streaming on the Criterion channel and you can find it elsewhere, obviously. Um, But the restoration on Criterion looks really good. So if you would like to support us, listen to our backlog of bonus episodes and or request a film of your own for us to discuss, you may do that at our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We greatly appreciate all of our support, of course, and we also greatly appreciate ratings or reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast service you use. A five-star rating or review is particularly useful in terms of visibility. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. You can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod, our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>